Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 138, the podcast where we discuss photography, videography, and anything and everything that's got anything to do with any of that. With me, Kirsten Lutz, and in today's episode, we have, of course, just as always, another awesome guest. But before I announce who it is, I have a favor to ask. When I checked our analytics, it turns out that 70% of you listening or watching on YouTube have not subscribed to this channel. And whilst that's absolutely awesome that you're listening and watching anyhow, if you like this channel or like this video, please do me a flavor and hit the subscribe button. I'd really love to get that down to like 50% or something. So click like, hit subscribe and leave a comment. It'll really help our channel being found. So buckle up, grab a cold one, and let's shake it up right after this. Before we get started, let me just say a quick thank you to our sponsor, DVE Store. DVE Store's mission is to help you create better video and provide you with the tools necessary to explore your creativity. If you have any digital video equipment needs, whether that's camera equipment, audio gear or lighting, and much more, you can check them out at dvestore.com. Thanks to DVE Store for the high-def video. So in today's episode, we have another special guest. Give it up for the California-based portrait and therapeutic boudoir photographer, educator and YouTuber, Mike Lloyd. Mike, man, how's it going? So good. Thanks for having me on, Kristen. Awesome. Man, it's uh, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm really great you got in touch. Uh, I'm really, I'm great. I'm great. Anyway, I'm really happy that you got in touch with me um, because, you know, because boudoir photography is not something that we've had on the show before. And it's always been, you know, it's been one of these niches of photography. I've always, I've always been thinking, well, we should really get a boudoir photographer on. And then, you know, seeing your work, um, you know, which is totally amazing, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really, really happy to have you on the show and to get an opportunity to talk to you. Um, now, th I think the first thing that people wonder when they think of boudoir photography usually is, you know, what's the, what's the difference between boudoir and glamour um, and like, uh, you know, art, nude photography, for example. Yeah. I think the titles are for SEO purposes, really. Uh, it, it's really your intention with the photography and what end result you're offering for your client. So like you read there in my title, uh, therapeutic boudoir photography. I had zero intention of doing that when I got started because I just didn't know that, that that could even be a thing. But uh, it, it's how I've positioned myself in my area to differentiate me from other photographers. I mean, aside from my work is significantly different from from how other people shoot boudoir normally, the intention behind it. And I say on my website, it's not about taking sexy photos. I photograph women being strong, confident, elegant, feminine, and that kind of energy looks sexy uh, when you're when you're radiating that kind of confidence. But sexy photos is not the point of what I do. And, and as far as therapeutic goes, and, and we can unpack this over the next two hours, I'm sure we will. Uh, again, because it's not about the photos. I even tell my clients during our consults, like your photos are the souvenir from the experience. And that's really where the magic happens. Uh, if you walk out of here without buying any photos, you're still going to have, it's, it's still going to be worth every penny. And my clients have told me that thankfully they buy photos, but uh, it, yeah, for me, it's not about the sexy photos. I want the confidence, the transformation. I want to change the way that my clients see themselves. And it's turned into more of a therapy session than a photo shoot. Um, 
in my client's words. And so I've, I've adopted that as, as my own brand position. That's a really interesting thing. I mean, a therapeutic um, boudoir photography is uh, clearly very different from, you know, from just boudoir photography. Yeah. But um, so what does it do to your client's confidence and self-esteem? Uh, man, part of my process, let, let's jump back to my consult. I'm asking them to visualize and I'm, I'm not telling them the mechanics of what we're doing, but I want to know who it is they want to see in these photos. And I don't say, tell me about yourself because they're thinking of the, the iteration of themselves that they don't want to see right now. They're going to tell me the things they don't like about themselves, the reasons they're not qualified to be in front of a camera 90% of the time. Instead, I said, describe the woman that you want to see in these photos. And I'll use their name, but I'll say, tell me, what is she like? Uh, describe her as a person, her her personality and, and what makes her special. And then they just, they get so excited talking about who this person is that they want to see in the photos. And that begins this whole process. And then things that they love about themselves, both physically and emotionally. And then we unpack different quirks and different things that make them special and unique because everyone says oh i'm not special i'm boring and i'm like well cool um what do you do when you're off the clock you know like when you go on vacation do you do you read like what and i, I get to know them on a more granular level and and that's what we incorporate into the shoot and they realize like oh i guess not everyone does this or maybe this thing that i do isn't trending on Instagram right now, but it's still a cool thing. And I, you know, shouldn't be ashamed of, of liking to knit or the fact that I, you know, have a matcha machine in the, that I use every morning instead of making coffee, just little things like that. Uh, so when they come into the shoot, they're already visualizing this unique, special, worthy person. And then they do these awkward poses. They look ridiculously good in the camera. And then it just like this switch flips and, it, and it's the same. It's like five to 10 minutes into every shoot. And then suddenly they went from like hands shaking nervous to, oh, I got this. Let's do this. And it, it's such a cool thing to see over and over again, even after seven, eight, this is eight my eighth year of doing boudoir full time. It's, it's really interesting. You know what you're saying there about this warm up face um at the beginning of the shoot because mm -hmm. you know and I've, I've spoken about this many times on on this podcast it's a very similar thing when it comes to headshots for example mm -hmm. you know, especially when you have uh, headshot clients that come in and they haven't really had their headshots done before or they feel nervous about the way they look or you know they you know they're not really exuberating with self-confidence or something it just it really takes that you know that little time at the beginning to to get them to calm down chill out and and start feeling confident. So do you, how do you get them to that point? Do you show them some of the images uh, to start with or? Yeah, firstly, when they walk in, we lay all their, their wardrobe out and everyone's just pacing around nervous. Uh, it's great. And then <laughs> uh, yeah, I let them pick the music. We pour a glass of Prosecco or some bubbly water if they want. And then we do hair and makeup. And I sit there face to face with them while we do an hour and a half of hair and makeup. And we're just, we're just talking. I don't even have the camera in the room and they're in, you know, sweatpants and a baggy t-shirt or something. And, and we're just hanging out. And by the end of that 90 minutes, it's like, we've, we've created such a comfortable environment. You know, I'm 
very particular about who I allow into my studio to work with me and my makeup artist. We worked together. This is our ninth year and it, we just got such a good rapport and we're so good at making people feel comfortable in that space. We've already had the buildup. Now we have this transition period. So when it comes time for them to actually, you know, put on whatever the first outfit is, uh, and pull the camera out, we've already done so much of the work. And then it's just a matter of cool. Put your elbow there, chin over this way, eyes down, take a breath, do the thing. How great do you look now? I show on the camera and they're like, holy smokes, where did that come from? I'm like, it's been here the whole time. So. I was wondering whether you whether you shoot tethered, what, you know, whether they can see themselves on a screen or you just go on the back of the camera. Yeah, because I don't want them to be focusing on that because then you get a lot of eyes looking over toward the screen in photos. I'm like, no, I want you here or I'll tell them where to put their eyeballs. Uh, but no, I, I, I only want to show them certain ones. And because my lighting style and the way that I edit my images, there's such a transition from straight out of camera to the finished result. I don't want them seeing the unfinished product unless it's one that I can look at and be like, yeah, this one's fine. So I also curate that. So do you, do you send them like an online gallery after the shoot and they, they pick nope. their final shot? They come back two weeks you... later for in-person. All right. Okay. Yep. Right. And also, everything's what? edited by then. So they're seeing fully edited images on a big screen with all the products around them. Oh, okay. So you edit the whole lot. And then well, they my take editor whatever. does. All right, <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, and she's way better at editing than me. I always did same day reveals before, where my client would go take a ninety minute break. I would call and edit usually seventy five photos, at least get them like ninety percent edited. I'm not in there doing all the really small fine tuning, but most of the way through. And then uh, I would finish editing the ones that they picked out. Um, but now I block my schedule. So I have multiple shoots in a day, then multiple reveals in a day. And my editor handles everything in between. Awesome. Well, so in today's episode, we're going to talk about uh, boudoir photography secrets. So for anybody who ever thought they might, you know, might be interested in boudoir photography uh, and really don't have the first clue as to how to do it, yeah. um, this this might be a really interesting episode. Um, but before we get into the the essence of the technical part and how to how to actually do it. Um, yeah. I just wondered how did you how did you get into boudoir photography? Um, what what was your path? Because I for some reason, and this might just be me, but for some reason I always had the impression that this would be, you know, like a, like a female dominated part of the industry. If you know what I mean. Yeah. So how, how did you how did you get to uh, to where you are now? Yeah, I mean you're not wrong. You know, it. I'd say shoot. 90% of all boudoir photographers are female and I'm just making up a number. Uh, but just, you know, looking on Facebook, Instagram, anywhere you go, an overwhelming majority are female or female identifying. Uh, I think it's just not enough dudes that stepped up or realized that they could. And when I got started, I was doing nothing but families, kids, and engagements back in 2010. I didn't want to touch boudoir because I didn't want to be the creepy dude to the camera. Like I never thought that I would was that guy. You know, most of my friends have always been women. Women have always been safe around me. But I had a lot of friends who were models who had horror stories about dudes just being weird when they get out to the shoots. And I didn't want to be associated with that person. Like I knew that wasn't me, but I never wanted to even, you know, 
I didn't want to tell people I was a boudoir photographer and have them think that I was the creepy dude with the camera on Craigslist trying to do, you know, free shoots in his basement. So I, I just avoided it. And I photographed a ton of Cirque du Soleil performers, dancers, cabaret show, uh, performers, all different kinds of performers in the San Francisco Bay area. You know, I'm here in California and I was doing all, you know, the, the posters, the billboards, all the marketing advertising stuff. And I got contacted one day by a professional dominatrix and she'd asked if I would take marketing photos for her because she liked what I had done for these other cabaret shows. And I'm like, well, I've never really done anything like that before. And I've done branding stuff and I've done the dancers, but not not anything like that. And she's like, well, I love your work and I like the stuff that you've produced. I'm like, well, I mean, if you're cool with me giving it a shot, having never done this before, uh, I'm willing to give it a go. So we went and we did this shoot and I'm thinking like, how do, how do I photograph a dominatrix in a way that also satisfies me creatively? Because I don't just want to take sexy photos. Like to me, that does nothing for, for the artist in me. And we, we told the story of her basically getting ready to meet a client and then coming home for meeting with a client. And so it's her getting dressed, lacing the corset, putting the makeup on in the mirror, looking out the window, things like that. And then coming home, you know, just the look on her face as she walks back in the door, as she's undressing, getting ready for bed. And we just told that story through photos and it ended up kind of being a hit. A bunch of her friends wanted to book me for sessions after that. I never had to, you know, we didn't shoot any nudity. There was nothing sexual about the images, but I mean, that's, that was the product essentially. And, um, I had a blast with it. And so then other people started reaching out to see if I would do similar shoots for them. And in 2015, I shut down my old business, opened up a new legal entity and dove all into boudoir. And I had no idea what I was doing. But I had a ton of people who wanted to work with me and it allowed me to build a portfolio and kind of create things as I went. And you can see on my vision board over my shoulder, like fashion inspired photos. I shoot everyone like it's a Chanel ad. I never learned how to do traditional boudoir. So I shoot it the way I want to shoot it. And I pay attention to what my clients want. And I've just, I guess, naively grown my business that way. And if they keep coming back, then you know you're doing the right thing, you know. Or I guess if they, um, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Is is your like your marketing model predominantly based around word of mouth? No, no, paid ads. Paid ads, okay. Yep, I do have systems in place for referrals, and I do a lot of uh, vendor marketing, teaming up with other businesses, stuff like that. But uh, now, paid traffic is is my jam. SEO though, uh, as of this morning, checking my analytics before this, I have passed in organic traffic what my ads have done. I guess I don't really run traffic to my my website from the ads, but uh, my SEO is finally catching up. So <laughs> amazing, diversifying. Amazing. Yeah, the, I think the SEO side of things is is what I need to work on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. It's really intimidating for a lot of people to get started on, but you learn a couple of fundamentals and it's not difficult. It's just, there's such a slow turnaround time from when you do the work to when you see the results. And so you don't know if what you did actually worked for a few months. And then 
then you can go back and review. And I, I think that's the, the difficult thing about it. Have you, do you feel the same or, or, or why have you not dove in like you wanted to? I think it's, um, I mean, it's partially, that's a very good question. I think, you know, generally SEO is, is quite a confusing subject. Okay. You know, t- to me in, in particular, I think I'm not, I'm not the most sort of technical person, I think is probably fair to say, you sure. know, so as far as like, you know, computers are concerned or technology is concerned, I'm, I'm like an end user, right? Yep. Like, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I come, I come at it from a creative point of view for the most part. You know, if you think like, you know, photography, if you take photography in general, uh, do you think of it as a spectrum, you know, from the super technical to the super creative and then. Every every photographer is going to sit somewhere on that spectrum. Some people are very technical. Some people are very creative. I don't really know the last the first thing about anything to do with the technology of it, but they just sure. you know intuitively do what they need to do or know what they yeah. need to do. Um, and I think you know I, I would guess I'm probably sort of some somewhere off off the the center of that, wearing towards the creative side of things. Okay. You know? So like SEO um, is is probably that one step of the deep dive too far for my brain. Okay. <laughs> you know, generally speaking. Valid. Uh, you know. Have you considered outsourcing? Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely something I'm I'm considering, yeah, for sure. Because that's mm-hmm. you know, that's another thing, of course, I, I think anybody has to learn is that, you know, if you can't do it yourself, there's gonna be somebody who can and it's yep. just you know, it's, it's worthwhile looking that way. Um you know, for me it's it's always been a matter of volume that's led to outsourcing. You know, a good example, I mean, editing is actually a really good example. You know, I do, um, I think I edit probably 90% of my headshots myself, okay. except for volume shoots. So, you know, if I'm at a conference, for example, in particular, like pre-COVID, for example, you know, they do a lot of uh, conferences. And yeah. so, you know, you shoot 100, 200, 300 headshots at that conference. Like, I, I'm not going to be sitting there hand retouching all of those no your brain is melting out of your eyeballs by the yeah. 50th one yeah <laughs> yeah plus you know the the time investment it's never going to pay you know that's no. the thing so it's in that respect it's much easier and of course i mean now you know i used to use um i used to outsource it to like a, a retouching house but nowadays with with ai it's even cheaper and even quicker yeah you know so um so that's where that comes in yep. relatively handy so you know and I think, you know, generally what I do is kind of, it's moving, you know, more into that direction. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, predominantly, I think, you know, with, with my headshot business, it's it's predominantly referrals, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I guess for the most part. Yeah. So, and I did try, I did try and use paid advertising as like Google Ads uh, one time and miserably failed. <laughs> Yeah, that was, my, that was my experience with Google Ads. So you know, because you know, well. I haven't had the best of luck with Google Ads either. I just haven't mm. put the work in, and part of that is that the Google Ad gets people onto your website, and then you need a really solid conversion strategy to get people to then get on your email list, to book a consult, to book a session, and it, it's just one piece of the puzzle. Same with SEO, you know. Um, I recently just did a year's worth of blog content for my website in like a day using AI stuff. But the 
Okay, boudoir secret number one, if we're gonna number these, and you can totally do this for your headshot stuff too with <laughs> SEO. The function of SEO is not to like trick Google into showing you first. It's it's a way to allow Google to understand what your website is about and connect you with people who are searching for those terms. So if you open up an incognito window in your browser, and that's what Chrome calls it. I don't know what the other other ones call it. Uh, and just go into Google and type in headshot photographer, your city or boudoir photographer near me, something like that. It's going to give you a list of suggestions. When you scroll to the bottom, it's going to give you a list of other searches that are relevant to what you're doing, or it'll have the, um, it's a list of like drop down questions with the little snippets of answers. Those are the most common things that people search for on Google related to what you do, or you just type in, you know, headshot photographer and let it autofill or boudoir, let it autofill. Those are the titles of your pages and your blog posts, because those are the most important things that people are searching for. And then you're like, cool. I typed in the word boudoir photographer and it gives you suggestions below. Like, what do you wear at a boudoir session? Uh, how much does boudoir photography cost? Whatever those all become blog posts. And then you, you don't even have to worry about like typing a compelling blog post. I use voice dictation on my computer and I'll just sit back in my chair and talk out what I think I want to say. And then I'll go back and I'll do one edit and I'm usually good. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a dissertation that you're submitting for review. It just has to be helpful information without fluff. And so Google will tell you what to call your pages. Those are your H1 tags. That's about as technical as we need to get. And then just talk to your computer like you're talking to your client. So it sounds like your voice and it doesn't seem like a, you know, technical manual for, for, I don't know, something that nobody actually wants to read. And then just schedule one of those every couple of weeks. And before long, Google's going to think you are the best resource available for serving these kind of clients because you are, you're providing useful content with words that clients are actually using. And at the bottom of every blog post, you're like, oh, cool. You want to know about what to wear for a boudoir shoot? Have you thought about shoes? Check out this post on what kind of shoes to wear. And then at the bottom of that one, you're like, oh, cool. Now that you know what kind of shoes to wear, have you thought about, uh, I don't know, accessories and jewelry. And then you'd link in into another one of your blog posts. And now you've had somebody clicking on multiple blog posts. Google loves that because they're not just going to one page and bouncing. They're visiting multiple pages on your site. Google tracks all other behavior. And now you're showing up even higher in search results. So I was going to be moving across the country two years ago and I started creating content for the new city that I was in. And within 30 days, I was ranked number two for about every boudoir phrase in this new city. I wasn't even living in yet because no one else did this. So if you live in the San Francisco Bay area, don't do this strategy, but anywhere else, go ahead and give it a shot because <laughs> <laughs> it works. Because you're, you're not too far from Cupertino, I guess. Is that right? You're 10 minutes north of me. Yeah. Yeah. The Apple spaceship. 
Yeah, I know. I know the area a little bit. Uh, but I've been to San Francisco a couple of times, and the, well, the, you know the Bay Area. So, yep. So I sort of I can kind of picture where you where you're at. So you yeah. know, if if you are in that area, uh, then you know make sure you check you check Mike Mike Studio. Uh, in actual fact, here's a little here's a little listener uh, shout out. If you are in the California in the wider you know Bay Area somewhere in California and you're listening to this podcast, you know. Make sure you get in touch. It's always awesome for us to to hear or to you know to get people to get to know people and see where they are when they're listening to the show. Um, yeah. That'd be super interesting. So if you are somewhere in California, you know, hit us up, get in touch. Um, you can do that via Facebook, join our Facebook group, or you know, hit us up on Instagram or send us send us a, a pigeon if you must. Any which way. This is where we interrupt our regularly scheduled programming for a new segment that we call "What Is Dave Up To Now." where we follow Dave Williams and his latest adventures, do not. Hello, Camera Shake Podcast. Hello, Kirsten. Hello, everybody. I am in a cabin. This is a rawber, a rawbu. It's a fisherman's cabin. This one's been restored on the island of Svinnoya, just outside of Svolva. Let's go outside and I'll show you exactly what they look like. So, excuse the wind, it's crazy windy. This is my cabin, and you can see some more cabins down below. In this beautiful setting, let's just duck out of the wind a bit. This beautiful setting here, the sun has gone. It is, let's have a look, 2.40. The sun's gone, um, some cloud is moving in. But this place is absolutely stunning. These cabins are 200 years old. The, um, there were 12 fishermen per cabin 200 years ago. And some of them have been restored, but there's one over there which has been left exactly as it was, which is going to be in my YouTube video this coming episode, episode 9 of June North 2. Um, I'm waiting patiently for the clouds to disappear again. I'm hoping for some polar stratospheric clouds which are extremely high and extremely cold. They're basically made of ice crystals. And the most stunning colors appear when the sun is below the horizon, illuminating the clouds as, it, as the light goes up above the horizon. But I don't know if that's gonna happen today. Anyway, um, the rest of this adventure is looking epic. I would love you to carry on following along while I hide from the wind. Um, Northern Norway is stunning. Winter is just done differently here. They do winter properly. They learn all about the snow and the ice and the cold from a very young age and they just do everything very differently. And I love how that works. And I'm having a great time shooting everything that I see. I'm going to be done here at Tenoy in a couple of days. Uh, I'm doing a, some uh, work here, shooting the cabins and shooting the Northern Lights with the owner in return for a stay here. Um, I don't know what to say about this place though. It's just. If you ever get the chance, once in a lifetime, as often as you can. That's what I'm trying to say. When it comes to boudoir photography, yeah, I think, I mean, for me, when I was thinking about it, and I was looking at your pictures, or your images, the thing that really struck me was your lighting. Like, you, you likened it to a Chanel advert earlier and I, I completely agree I mean your Thank images you. are lit so well what's your sort of go-to secret when it comes to lighting boudoir so when I did that very first session uh back in I guess that was 2014 I did the session I showed up at her house to do do the shoot 
and the room we had to work in was basically an empty room, hardwood floors and white walls. The bed had white sheets. There was a mirror on the wall, nothing else. And I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to do in here? I don't have anything to interact with. There's no like cool set. And she's all in black in a white room. And I don't know, it just, it didn't fit her brand to have like brightly lit images. So I threw a gridded strip box on and I just side lit her for everything to basically take the background out of it. Uh, I mean, it was lit enough that it didn't look like she was in a black room because the white walls were reflecting light everywhere, but I really controlled the spill and just lit her like that. And that's kind of what I had to do, but it worked. And that is kind of where I got my style. And everyone liked the way that those images looked. And so I did a couple more just portfolio building shoots to figure out, you know, the nuances of that kind of lighting. And it, it separates me from everyone else around because no one shoots like I do. And I really enjoy the challenge because in a, in a bright sunlit room, when there's no bad angles for light to me, that doesn't challenge me. And I want to go into every shoot, you know, with a new body type, a new personality, a new everything. And I get to put all the puzzle pieces together. And this lighting style is a challenge for me too. You know what I love about your lighting style is um, you you work really well with short lighting. And I just love the way mm -hmm. that it creates mystique and mystery because, you know, because you your shadow work, if I want to call it that, is so good. You know, Thank you. It's, it's like, it's really, you always feel like, there's something left to reveal, which is great, you know? Yeah. Yeah. After I started doing it, that became part of the brand. And, and you know, I encourage my clients, wear whatever you want. If you don't want to do shots in your undies, great. Go fully clothed. They're still going to be sexy because exactly that. You, we're not just putting everything out there. And if that's what you want to shoot, great. It's not my style. I'd rather leave more to the imagination. And it's the the bits that you're not getting that keep you in. So thank you for acknowledging that also. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's definitely it's the, the thing that really you know, jumped out at me when I when I looked at your imagery. It's, it's really, uh, it's very interesting. Um, and it really made me think about just generally about the style of boudoir photography and, um, and it's, it's just sort of the reasoning behind it, if you know what mm -hmm. I mean. Because, you know, it's often the things that we don't see that intrigue us much more than the th the things that are blatantly obvious, right? And and I, and I really feel it really works really well with that style of photography. Yeah, you know, because as you say, because you have, you know, subjects of different body types, for example. And I guess that's really something that you know must boost your your clients' confidence as well when they really see themselves lit in this way. And you know, and, and not everything is totally revealed and, and out on shows. That's correct. Yeah. Now, given side lighting shows every pore, every wrinkle, every crease, every everything, which is why I don't show as many images off back of the camera and why they don't see unedited images. Um, so there is that. But again, I've got a, an amazing editor who who does it way better than I did for my first several years of doing it. And so that's not an issue anymore. But you have to know what the end result is going to be if you're going to shoot this style because straight out of camera is not the same as 
Yeah, it's not just color grading. There's a lot more that goes into to working the images. Yeah, that's uh, I obviously I mean I know this very well from portrait photography because that's mm-hmm. you know, that's that's a large part of what I do, and um, it's very similar with you know with a project that I shoot called Three Heads in a Row, which is sort of a slightly comical, um, I don't know, slightly cartoonish form of of portraiture. Yeah. Um, but if you know when you look at the straight out camera image, it leaves a lot to the imagination, and it's very different from the from the finished shot because. Because the the post production is actually part of the of the style, you know. So it's so you you really only get fifty percent of what you're actually going to end up seeing in the, in the final really? shot when you look at the thing, you know, the, the image straight off straight out of camera. And yeah. so at, at that point, um, and the way I shoot it is actually I I have my my uh, clients or my subjects review them on a the screen. They come they come through on a screen straight away. So they see the image straight away. In this particular context, it's important because I need to adjust their expression. It's all about the expression in this thing. And it's all about making the, ex- the expression as extreme as possible. Right. And so if, I mean, it serves two purposes. Once, uh, for one, I can, I can direct them much better if they see themselves. And secondly, it also, it helps me getting them to relax. Mm-hmm. Because after about 10 minutes of doing that, even the most extreme ridiculous expression starts to become pretty normal because you've already looked at 30 of them. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're like desensitized to the ridiculousness. Yeah, Completely, that's great. yes. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. That's the whole point. Exactly, yeah, desensitized. That's exactly, that's the word. So, um, but, you know, in, in a sense, it's similar in the sense that, um, you know, what they see on the screen is nothing like what the finished product is going to look like. Yep. They have a good idea as to what's going to look like because they've seen a lot of my other work, so mm-hmm. they know where this is, where this is leading to, in a sense, you know. Yep. Um, do you do behind the scenes photos and share what that process looks like? I do. Yeah. I mean, I've um, I have I've written about it uh, on several blogs, for example. Um, in fact, I did, um, I did an episode of Behind the Shot, uh, yep. where I was you know going through all the behind the scenes malarkey of of that particular uh, project. Yeah. Um it's 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 one of those things that it's one of these projects I do it for really as we say in Britain for shits and giggles. <laughs> as they yep. say. You know, it's really just it's a good laugh. Um it makes me laugh because I find those images funny and right. you know and uh, and my clients find them funny too. So you know, so it it it's just a good time the end result is hilarious. And that's really all it is. You know, it's just like, I don't know, you can call it an art project if you want, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's just a fun thing to do. Yep. <laughs> you know, which is super important. And a lot of photographers, especially when you get into the grind of doing client shoots over and over and over again, you have to do the fun ones that keep you excited as a creative so that it doesn't just feel like a monotonous, like a cookie cutter process. So, yeah. You know, you know what's, what's interesting about this also is I really enjoy teaching that process. And I know you do a similar thing on your YouTube channel, for example, where you go behind the scenes when it comes to like a, a boudoir photography and you sort of, you know, share the techniques and, and the secrets as it were. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I've noticed, you, I mean, you seem to really be enjoying your YouTube videos. I have a blast, yeah. And that was part of the thing when I was working with the creative team to start the channel. It's like, I want this to be me. And I like just, you know... Uh, uncensored if you will like i i'm gonna give you everything i got i'm not gonna pretend to be something because i know i'm already a character let's just do this and 
I just have fun with it. And that, that keeps me going too. Behind the scenes is another boudoir secret because we need to demystify the process for our clients because they think we our our website is just models and the the person viewing could never do the things that the models are doing on the website when in reality the clients on the website thought the same thing and now they're the ones on the website and it it's just it's a cycle so you know i do behind the scenes where we're shown in a brightly lit room doing the poses and then it pans to the or it cuts to the finished photo and it's like oh that's how you do it you're not in like a dark room um and that's that has really helped elevate my brand and make it feel more accessible to more people so i know we don't want to like show all the magic that we do but at this point show everything like you could do videos of you retouching to show what level of retouching you do based on clients comfort but the behind the scenes of the shoots and, you know, get model releases signed, uh, will really make everything seem more accessible because it's such a vulnerable experience. So when they can see that everyone's just laughing, having a good time, there's no awkwardness at all. And then this weird looking thing turns into this beautiful photo. People are going to want to work with you. That's so. a really good point, actually. Um, and I've always loved behind the scenes. Um, just generally we've done quite a bit on the, on the camera shake yeah. um, channel, but you know, one of the reasons I, I I love it is because I love watching behind the scenes thing. I've I've loved watching behind the scenes stuff ever since the advent of DVDs. Do you remember back in the day when you when you like you you get a DVD of a movie and yeah. then it come with a second DVD that had all the behind the scenes stuff on it and the bloopers very, and act outtakes and stuff. Yes, and, and, and yeah. how it was shot, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I used to, you know, I used to buy like a DVD set. And I'd watch the behind the scenes first before I watched the movie. Okay. You know, because I was, I was like, I was completely obsessed with seeing how the process worked. And also, uh, you know, things you watch the movie and, you know, let's say there's a lot of CGI in it. And you kind of go, well, that's all well and good. I want to know how they made this. Like, because I know that dragon isn't real. <laughs> you know? Isn't but it? Like, <laughs> well, or is it? Yeah, exactly. So, but, you know, it's, uh, and that's sort of the interesting thing, you know, and when you really deep dive into it, you realize what well, I'm not even wearing like superhero costumes. They're just wearing blue suits with ping pong balls stitched to them. Like, That's nuts. Like how, you know, yeah. so uh, I've always been, I've always been super fascinated um, with that. But I think, you know, in today's world of social media and all the rest of it, the behind the scenes uh, footage really serves one very crucial purpose. And that is people or potential clients will get a really first rate impression of what it's like to be working with that particular photographer. Like, yeah. that's the kind of vibe that goes on during the shoot, you know, and they can see, well, this looks like fun. I mean, I want to be, I want to be in that, in that yeah. situation, you know? Absolutely. It adds a human element to it. It makes it relatable. It makes it approachable. And no one wants perfect on Instagram anymore because it's not relatable. They want to know that, we're just regular people doing a thing and they could do it too. So also, also nobody believes perfect anymore. I think, you know, uh, we've, I think humans in general have wised up to the fact that, you know, things aren't what they seem yep. on the internet. So absolutely. Uh, and I think it takes a lot of pressure off us as well, you know, cause we don't have to do this high production 
behind the scenes documentary style shoot you know we're not shooting chef's table uh we can do everything with our smartphones which have great video capabilities considering that's what i do all my stuff with my makeup artist who's there anyway she takes behind the scenes footage with my phone or i went and bought this little canon power shot is it about i don't even know it doesn't matter uh just a little point and shoot camera that my stylist can can use on auto mode just to document what we're doing and it's like photos of me demoing a pose in front of my client or just us cracking up over something ridiculous that we're talking about and that stuff is magic zero production quality but it doesn't matter exactly and that's that's the really fun part um with it you know when Instagram first introduced stories, and this goes back how many years? Like five, five years, six years, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember, you know, the the way it was intended to be used was, uh, you know, was this idea that you know you take a series of shots throughout the day, and you basically tell the story of your day through a number of different shots that you string together, and each shot pops up for ten seconds or fifteen seconds or whatever it was. Yeah, and you basically sort of document or like story tell your day that that way to your friends and followers and whatnot and you know at the time and i mean i wasn't the only one but at the time i thought like oh this is a really cool concept this vertical video what if i made a story every week and i completely way over the top overproduced it like what if i throw everything in the kitchen sink at it and i script it you know i, I work out a storyline i script it um then i shoot it and then i totally over the top, edit the whole shebang. Yeah. And then I put it out every Wednesday or whatever. And then 24 hours later, it just disappears and it goes. And, um, and I thought oh, it'd be a fun thing to do, you know, just to see what the response would be. And the response was massive. It was, it was ridiculous. Like literally, I kind of thought at first I thought, okay, well, you know, if I hit a hundred followers, then, you know, then that's me done. And that happened within the first day or so. Wow. And I thought, oh, wow. Okay. Um, and then I kept doing it and I thought like, oh, well, when I hit 300, they'll be, you know, I'll pack it in then because it was quite a lot of effort. That yeah. happened really quickly and then I had 500 really quickly and I had like, when I hit 1,000, I kind of thought, okay, I need to get my weekends back. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that's like, uh, but it was a really interesting, um, it, was, it was an interesting experiment and what people particularly seemed to like was when every now and again I put a blooper reel out where I basically made a story out of all of the things that went wrong behind the scenes. Yeah. And those those were some of the most successful videos at the time. You know, is people could actually see what it was like because by the time, you know, I, I don't know, maybe six, seven, eight weeks in, this was like a family production. Like my, I think my daughter was like six at the time. She was mm -hmm. totally involved and she actually became, sometimes she became the director, the camera person. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> she would call the shots. Um, you know, my wife was involved. Like my kids were involved. It, it sort of turned into this family production, oh. you know. And uh, and it just it sort of yeah, it was a little bit overwhelming at one point. So we kind right. of thought, okay, experiment went well, perfect. Let's move on. Like if <laughs> yeah. only that could have been the full time gig, and you not do anything else, then you yeah. just saw the family time. But yeah. Right. And that's one way to do it. I think it's cool, right? To do the creative projects as we touched yeah. on earlier, just, mm. just play and see, see what works. Yeah, know? absolutely. That's cool. All right. So, so posing? Let's, let's come back to posing. And what, what I'll do is I'll, I'll just cut to this bit 
and then we'll we'll use you know the um, the other bit at the end of the the behind yeah. the scenes bit, if you know what I mean. Cool. And then we'll just we'll just cut straight. Or I'll just cut straight into into pausing there. Okay. okay. So the other thing that I think people are often wondering when they think about Buddha photography is posing. How do you pose your subject? Um, first of all, my impression is this: this is about a million and a half different poses. So how am I going to remember all those? Um, and secondly, is that how do you connect with your subject who's not a professional model? Mm-hmm. And get them to to pose for you. Like, what's your secret when it comes to posing? So, even when I work with professional models, I do all the directing. Um, you know, I've got a friend who has been in Vogue. She's done a ton of different fashion modeling. And when we did um, my posing book, we went through and I shot her doing 150 different poses with like how I actually put people into the poses. Um, and we had a blast doing that. But it, it's all up here, right? So I'm giving her the direction how to do everything. So whether they have experience or not, I go into every shoot with the same intention. And and that's a, that's the first big step. You need intention with the posing. It's not a matter of, well, what's a good pose? I don't know. Well, a good pose for what? for this body type, for the kind of mood and feel that we're trying to create. Because if I'm going to go with a really fashion inspired shoot, that's going to be very different um, than if I want to do something more like soft and playful. Do I want more submissive poses? Do I want more dominant poses? Am I showing off legs? Am I showing off arms? Am I just like, what are we doing? So understanding that is the first step. What are you trying to accomplish? And it's not just making people look skinny. That's that's not it. Obviously, we don't want to make people look, uh, put them into an unflattering position, but that means something different for absolutely everyone. I have just as many clients who are size zero who are like, can you please give me curves? Cause I don't have curves. I'm like, I got you. So it goes both ways. And, and I just start with one position. Like I'll have them sit down and it's like, cool, move that foot and move that knee, do the thing. It's triangles, it's separation. Um, I mean, there's so much that, that goes into that, but it, but it's having intention first and then just moving one body part at a time. And when I got started, we didn't have Instagram yet. Pinterest, I think was just a thing, but I would literally get fashion magazines and tear out pages. And I would look at the page of the magazine like, okay, turn that way a little bit and then move your elbow out. And then, and just moving one thing at a time on people copying a fashion magazine pose. And that's another reason my, my photography looks so much, uh, or looks so different from other boudoir photographers is because I never learned boudoir posing. Everything that I shoot is fashion. And so, that was just literally copying fashion magazines. Um, and then also understanding like, okay, well, this is a professional model. Everything is heavily edited. I'm looking at back of camera on someone who has no idea what they're doing. How do I, how do I bring the two together? Um, but having intention, just focus on one body part at a time and make triangles and separation. So like everything, you know, we don't want right angles, bring it into a, a triangle, you know, with, with the hair, bring things up over here. We're creating triangles. We don't want things squished, get some separation. Um, 
I could ramble on for a while. Stop me, please. <laughs> <laughs> but posing is, posing is a really interesting uh, subject, you know, I, um, and I find this like even in when it comes to headshots, for example, um, you know, posing is very uh -huh. important because again, you know, it's all about the direction because your subjects don't know the first thing about posing and they don't just yeah. go look at the camera and go, okay, you know, and it looks like a passport photo basically. You know, right. that's, that's the thing. So without, without direction, you're never really going to get a result that's sort of universally pleasing as it, as it were, or interesting yeah. or, or, you know, or especially with headshots, um, brings across, for instance, you know, the client's profession, which I think is, for me, it's always extremely important. Like I'd shoot somebody, um, yeah, somebody who's a, I don't know, a nurse, for example, I shoot him completely different from somebody who is the CEO of a company. Yep. or something like that, you know. So really, you know, all of that is in the way that they hold themselves and the way that they're posed and the way that they look, you know, and so so forth. A lot of that really comes comes directly from that. Yeah. Um, so you, you talked about different body types. Um, so how important is posing when it comes to different body types? Again, it goes back to intention. And that's why I don't really think I don't believe in like plus size poses or because everybody is different. I mean, like every, as in two words, every body is different, different levels of flexibility, mobility. Clients may have injuries, not be able to move certain joints, certain ways. Um, even just the way that they shift their weight and the, their core strength, how they can hold themselves up or balance. Can they, when they kneel, can they sit back on their heels? Not everybody can. And so. I can't do the same poses with everybody. Or sometimes I have someone who's six, three, I put her on my couch and it looks like she's on a piece of children's furniture. And then I have someone who's five foot and it looks like, you know, she's Alice who ate the other mushroom that shrunk her down. And <laughs> like one of these giant chairs. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so there's, and, and to me, this is the fun part. I never want to see a photo of a client before they walk in. Um, you know, my styling team can work with any hair type, color, texture, any skin type, condition, anything. Uh, and then I can pose anybody. And it's just because, I mean, I've done this a million times, but even when I got started, and I think this is another tip number three, uh, when you're directing people, even if you have no idea what you're doing, give confident direction, confident sounding direction and tell them they look great. So when you start, you're like, okay, turn your shoulders that way, bring your chin over here and then look at the camera and then pop your booty back and then bring your hands up into your hair. Even if it looks like the most ridiculous thing, be like, yes, that looks so good. Now drop your other hand over here, take a photo. Now drop that hand down here, take a photo, tell them they look great. You can review the stuff later on. You're just portfolio building at this point and just constantly move things. Every time you you take a photo, tell them to move something, turn something, drop something, lift something, hook it in the waistband, bring it up, whatever. Remind them that they're looking amazing and just keep moving things. Because when you're moving them quickly, they don't have time to think about how awkward all of this feels. So you'll get better facial expressions. Also, you're not sitting there thinking, oh man, that doesn't look good. What am I supposed to be doing? And then the client or model or whoever sees your face and then they're like, oh my gosh, I'm ugly. I can't do this. They're disgusted by what I'm doing. Then when we, while you're not even considering them, you're thinking about how you're the failure and you're both sitting there in the room 
having a panic attack on entirely different levels and it's totally unnecessary. So just go in and just move things as fast as you can. Don't think about what's even going on um, and just review everything later. And also, I think one of the really important things you mentioned earlier is just move one thing at a time. And I, I say this to my to my clients all the time. This is mm -hmm. like the mantra. Just move one thing at a time. You know, especially, I find this, um, It, I mean, it's, it's super important and super effective when you're shooting uh, groups of people as well, by the way. So, you know, um, when I do band shoots, for example, and yeah. especially with, with younger, more experienced, uh, more inexperienced bands, they don't really you know that's the first photo shoot they've ever done. Um, they really don't know the first thing about posing or how to stand or any of those things. And then, you know, placing them in place and then telling them to just move one thing at a time works really well because yep. you can either give them a specific direction at the beginning or once they get used to it, you know, once we're like 20 minutes into the shoot or something, they start to get a hang of all of the different things that they could move, like they could move a hand or an arm or the head or, you know, whatever. Yep. And uh, and before you know it, you get to this point, this is what I feel, you know, I get to this point where they see the flash going off and they know, they're trained, they know to move one thing. And it literally just then, you know, it's just a conveyor belt at, the t at yeah. that point. And then I just have to throw in some very specific directions if I see something that I like, you know, or I've got a specific idea. But usually at that point, then it starts to roll pretty, yeah, pretty easily. Absolutely. Uh, <sighs> And when, when giving direction, use your outside voice. This is a thing that I teach, you know, posing classes, lighting classes, and the new photographers will step up and they're like, well, if you could, I don't know, if you want to like turn your shoulder or maybe if you want to look over there, like, no, turn your shoulder, chin over, eyes on that. And never use the words left and right because our left and right is backwards from our client. So I have concrete things around the room. I don't mean they're, they're made of concrete, but that light switch is a fixed position. That doorknob is a fixed position. And so I know that when I'm having clients pose in front of my backdrops, that corner is 45 degrees away. That light switch is 45 degrees away. The camera, and I can tell people, look into my light, look at the light switch, look at the whatever, and they know where to go as opposed to, cool, now look left. And they're like, your left or my left or, you know, uh, that's yeah. a huge thing. Yeah, absolutely right. That confuses the hell out of me. Like my brain isn't wired to see things in in mirror fashion. You know what I mean? Right. It's like I just can't. My my brain just doesn't work like that. So I need to use alternative terms. You know, like for instance, um, I would use instead of you know right or left foot, I would say camera foot, and that'd be the foot that's closer to the camera, basically, or okay. something like that. Yeah, that, that usually works the way I place. Yeah, um, the way I post it usually works. Um, and you know, yeah, do the same thing. I basically make the point out to you, look at that shelf or, you know, turn your head into the light or whatever it may be. Exactly. Um, that's a really great tape. I mean, that works, that works perfectly. It's left and right. It's too confusing anyway. Right. <laughs> before, before we know it, you know, this whole thing like about, uh, I can never remember what's, what starboard and whatever the other one is. And port. And port. I have no idea what's what. Zero. I can, you can explain that to me 50 times over and I still won't, <laughs> I still won't remember what's what. So. No. Yeah, my, my directional brain isn't really happening. My wife will attest to that because I always get lost. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So, um, so if you if you had to give somebody like your top posing tip, like the top number one posing tip, what would it be? 
create triangles. Ev everything should form a triangle. The legs, the the torso, the way they're positioned in the frame, arms, hands, everything makes triangles. I'm going to give a quick apology to the folks in podcast land. You can't see this photo, but we'll link to the book in the show notes. So if you check out this page, you can see I've drawn triangles on her. Fantastic. That's what we're creating. That is where my brain goes. I'm not looking at the person as a person when I'm posing. I'm like looking through them and I'm seeing them as shapes. And that's how I pose somebody. It's not an arm. That's just a line over here that I need to put into an aesthetically pleasing way. And if somebody's interested in getting hold of your posing book, where can they find it? Uh, boudoirguild.com. And you'll see everything available right there. Excellent. And of course, we put all the links in the description. Anyhow, so if you were to check out um, Mike's website or you know, where we can get hold of the book, um, you know, just check out the check out the description. Whilst you're doing it, by the way, let me just say, you know, whilst you're checking out the description and you come across a subscribe and like button and so on, just hit that. Just, you know, it's easy. Just hit it. It'd be, you uh, know what? That'd be my number two best posing tip. I think you will instantly become a better photographer if you just subscribe to this channel. Oh, I've, absolutely. I've heard that science backs that. 100%. 100%. But <laughs> no. if you are listening to the audio version only of this uh, of this podcast, you might hear my dog traipsing around in the background. <laughs> He's managed to break into the, into yeah. the room. <laughs> so like whether or not somebody picks up the book, I, I will say if you're using a resource with you as a guide, which when you're portfolio building is amazing. I mean, I even keep my own book in the studio for my own reference because I get into routines. I go through the same stuff with my clients. I have my poses that I know work well for just about everybody, the ones that everyone buys, which is important because I'm running a business. And then, I don't know, maybe 20% of my shoot, I'm experimenting and doing new things with everybody. Uh, and so I keep the book with me because there's a lot of poses I shot for this book specifically that I don't normally do. And so it keeps me being creative. But even if you're just having magazines or something with you, I always recommend a paper version of whatever your resource is versus a tablet or a phone. Because when I'm looking at a magazine or my book, and which is why I specifically did the spiral bound version in addition to the PDF, I'm not losing that connection with my client. If I'm scrolling through a tablet or something, we're on different planets. And that to me is is not acceptable. So um, another reason I switched to mirrorless cameras because of how good the autofocus is without me having to hold my face up to the viewfinder, move my focus point, the camera can just do that automatically. You know, when I shoot everything at F1.8 and I can trust the technology, I never have to lose eye contact with my client. I can hold the camera up, frame it, and then look at them while we're doing whatever we're doing. And I can take the photo and trust the tool to get the job done. So that's another big one is yeah, maintaining that connection. That's huge. I think eye detection is a huge, huge improvement. You know, generally, generally as far as communication is concerned, because otherwise you always have this this thing between you and you know, and the subject. Yep. And of course, it's exact as in portrait photography generally, whether it's headshots or whatever. Whenever right. you, whenever you photograph another human, you know, it really, um, it really pays off to not have that thing blocking 
your face because that's you know right. that's how we that's how we connect. It's like through the eyes and you know through yeah. looking at somebody's face. So um, yeah, fully agree. Uh, you know, even in video, I mean, ever since I switched to uh, the the Z six two that's yeah. filming me right now, I don't have to even worry about focus. You know, nope. at all. I just no. turn the thing on. It catches my eye. I can see on my little screen. It's just following my eye around as yeah. if it's nothing. It's such a such a time saver, and also just you know, just a hassle saver, right? Basically, well, and you shooting headshots. I mean, connection is the photo. You know, when we don't have any any other body parts visible, like it's about the connection. And I'm sure you noticed before, right? When you used to, you could get a great interaction with somebody. The second you bring the camera up, people change. And all that work you just did went away. Yeah, it, and it's, it's, you... it's actually very similar to uh, what you, you know, what you mentioned earlier, which is when people look at a phone. You know, when you're having a conversation with somebody and they start looking at their phone, you immediately feel like, you know, okay, they've checked out. They're not listening to me anymore. They don't, you know, they're not yeah. interested. They're not interested in what I have to say. Um, yeah. And it's like, to me, there's like, I immediately think it's rude. You know, it's like, I mean, you have to think like, oh, okay, well, pardon, what am I, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, yeah. you clearly don't want to communicate with me. Um, yep. And, uh, and it's, it's really, it's a very similar thing when, you know, as a photographer, when you sort of disappear behind the camera, um, you know, and I've, like I said, I've, I've found this, you know, it's, it's made a massive difference to the way that I, the way that I shoot headshots um, yeah. by, by just being able to not having to you know, not having to disappear behind the camera all the time. It's, I also like shooting headshots uh, on a, with a tripod for that very yeah. reason, because I can literally just, you know, have, have that conversation. The only downside of that is that what I find is that I have to remind people to look at the lens right? You know, when it comes to headshots, it's because they, they tend to very much instinctively, you know, look at where my face is, which might be slightly off center or whatever. So in order to get the eye line right, I'm, you know, that's, that's the one thing, but that's no big deal, really. Right. In the great scheme of things. So I did the same thing when I first switched over to mirrorless because my verbiage was always, you know, look into the light, look at the thing or look at me. Hmm. And when I switched to mirrorless in my first session, I noticed my client's eyes were up in all of the photos. I'm like, that's weird. I remember her looking at the camera, but she wasn't. She was looking at me, not the camera, which was lower than my eye level. And so then I had to change my verbiage that I had used for, for six years of photographing people, no longer like eyes on me or look at me. It's look at the camera, eyes on the camera. So I did have to make that adjustment also. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So let's talk about post-production and editing. And I know you mentioned yeah. earlier that that's something you outsource for the most part. I do um, now. Yeah. But I'm guessing when you first started, you did all the editing yourself. I did. And I mean, like we've all had instances of, you know, hair tie on somebody's wrist or lint on a shirt that you're like, man, I wish I would have caught that. Cause now I got to clone it out of every single photo from the shoot. What I loved about the editing process is that it made me a better photographer because I learned what I needed to fix in the shoot to save me that time in post-production. Also, the minimum viable product, which is what is the 
least amount of work that I need to put into images that I could sell to my client and not because I'm lazy, but because, you know, like when you were doing your Instagram video projects, like you want to have your weekends back and hang out with your family and your friends and like sleep. So I, I needed to work on that as well. And I, I would work backwards into the shoot, like, okay, I'm editing these things out of the background of all the photos. So I'm going to take the extra two minutes to clear out the back of the room, knowing that, yeah, it's going to slow down the pace of the shoot, but the client doesn't care if it takes 30 more seconds, just keep talking to them while you're moving things around. And then your life gets so much easier. Uh, having professional hair and makeup there was that's again, non-negotiable as a male boudoir photographer. Also, I always have a female stylist present. It's never me alone with a client because if their bra strap is twisted, I'm not going to go adjust that my stylist will, um, you know, stray hair on the face that I don't have to clone out. Now my stylist spots things like that. We've built up that kind of, of rapport together. So we're both looking for those kind of details that she can jump in and fix too. Um, so for me, it's really how much can I prevent before I get into post-production so I can speed up the workflow and I've got my skin retouching. I've got my, my color grading for the style that I shoot, which is why in 90 minutes I could call and edit 75 to hundred images, almost to the point of being ready to print. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, the other thing to consider is of course, you know, is that ultimately as far as, as far as the post-production is concerned, you still, you know, you're still running a business. So if you're spending twice the time on, on editing a single shot, you're literally losing that time the other end. So yep. I always think, you know, um, if I can fix something before I start shooting, then that's going to save me so many hours afterwards, which I can yeah. then use to, I don't know, do some marketing or you know, shoot another, do another shoot or whatever else. Yeah. You know, uh, or just watch Netflix. Take a day well, off and go do something, have lunch with your daughter, right? Exactly right. So, um, I think, you know, something that, that really struck me with your images as well is, is just how well the, the skin retouching is um, or how good it is in your shots. Um, do you use a particular technique for that? I run everything through Imagenomics Portraiture first. And that does a lot of the heavy lifting and then frequency separation to smooth out all of the shadow highlight transitions. Uh, and I, I can get each photo done in like, well, I mean, it takes about 40 minutes to run portraiture on a batch of hundred photos. And then, you know, I can go grab a snack or do something else while that runs. And then I don't know, 60 to 120 seconds. I guess one to two minutes per photo of actual like frequency separation to work. And, you know, I run the action to do all the frequency separation stuff. Use a Wacom tablet and I can go through and, and fix something real fast. But actions in Photoshop are also key for that. I mean, I do the same thing, you know, yep. as far as, as far skin retouching is concerned. Yep. Um, and then presets in Lightroom, you know, whether I'm using gels or just my standard white lighting, I can batch that to the whole shoot. And I know that 95% of them are going to be done right there. And I might just adjust shadows or highlights a little bit, one photo at a time. Uh, but frequency separation is a game changer. I mean, to try to clone out all the things, it just, it took too long. 
honestly. And the frequency separation, it's just, it's fast and it looks so much better. And it works equally well on skin as it does on fabric. That's the other thing. Everything. Wrinkles and fabric can go away too. Yeah, All of exactly. it. Is so that what you do also? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. 100%. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, on fabric, especially on shirts. Yeah. Um, you know, and and on the background as well. You know, it works really well on products, just generally like any, you know, just to even out shadows and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Reflections, you know, sometimes when you have like, you know, specs of something and something, it's just, it just, works really really well yeah um, I, and I content aware cell that oh, has been another big huge huge game changer yeah you know it's like oh man there's tag showing through the lacy underwear like how i'm not gonna go in and try and clone the piece of white out through all the little lace now we cut tags off of everything when my clients walk in the door oh. um you know, but it could be a spot on the floor. It could be anything. And content aware fill can get rid of almost everything. You know, another thing that I love doing, uh, especially in uh, in portrait shoots, is I'll, I'll overlay a texture over the backdrop, like mm -hmm. in post. And what yeah. that does is it actually saves me a lot of time. First of all, it looks really cool, but also, um, and of course, you've got a degree of control over what you want it to look like. But, um, but it also gets you out of the fix of having to, like, retouch the, the background to that degree because yeah. the texture just hides a lot of the imperfections and actually they sort of blend into the texture and it makes it look even cooler and you don't really yeah. have to go and you know a good, good example is like I, I use um i use a black pop-up backdrop a lot sure you know and that thing is always freaking fuzzy i mean there's always some there's always crap on there you know like you yeah. can't help it i mean i have a dog so there's going to be a dog hair on there which you don't <laughs> see when you put it up but then of course once you you know once you review the images um, on a computer you go oh damn dog and then that hair is going to be on every flipping shot you know that's the thing yep so um so yeah i i, I work with textures quite a lot it's it's it does work really well especially in uh, in the three ads in a row series um the whole the background is really a composite out of a number of different textures and the black backdrop. And really the only thing I have to clone out is where you can see the corners. You know, sometimes right. there'd be a bit of a light stand or a bit of a clamp coming in or something yeah, like that, you know. So that kind of stuff I'll I'll clone out, which takes no time at all. Especially with content where I feel most of it is just right. literally just, you know, you highlight it. Yeah. Click two buttons and it's gone. <laughs> you know, for exactly. the most part. Why don't you you outsource all of your editing? Why just the the volume shoots uh it's probably predominantly because i really quite like editing i like you know oh. it's it's part of um it's sort of part of my creative persona okay you know and um, a lot of the time i shoot for the edit so i know exactly what the edit because i know what the edit is going to be like i know exactly what i need to get in camera so yeah. um you know the way i always explain it is, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, for those people who play the electric guitar, right? An electric guitar in itself without an amplifier is pretty much a dead instrument. It's it's not very loud at all. You know, you can't, right. you can barely hear it. It doesn't sound very good. You know, uh, it doesn't sound like what you would imagine an electric guitar to sound like. Um, but an amplifier on its own is just a dead box. It's inanimate. It's, it doesn't make a sound. But once you put the two together, you can create awesome music. And in fact, you have to put the two together because otherwise there'd be no music. So it really right. only works when you have both. And and so I approach um, I approach 
post-production and the actual shooting part in the same way. To me, it's a little bit like an electric guitar and amplifier. You know, it's to me that is the whole thing. So when right. I do when I do specific uh, specific shoots, like let's say three heads in a row is a good example, um, or um, you know, or band shoots, you know, stuff like that. Um, I think about I sort of backwards engineer the whole thing, so I know exactly what the whole thing is is going to end up looking, and then I backwards engineer, so I know exactly what I need in the shooting part. And I also work a lot with composites. So that's yeah. that's the other thing. So I composite things. And I saw one of your shots, um, which had lots of like books hovering around. Yeah. You know, so I do that's the kind of stuff I do, um, you know, a lot. And and so there, because I already know what the final product is, is supposed to look like, um, you know, I kind of I shoot for the post production process. Yeah. Um and so I really enjoy it. <laughs> that's probably the okay. main reason. It's where I don't enjoy it is when um, I do an event shoot, for example, or a volume headshot uh, right. type of thing, where I know I'm going to have to get through 300 shots, or I could deliver two, 250, 300, 400 shots. Um, I don't enjoy that kind of editing. So right. that's that's the sort of thing I'd I'd outsource. Yeah. So when you do your headshot sessions or or portrait sessions, how many images are you working on from a given shoot? So what I do is um, the selection process actually happens right after the actual shooting session. So the yep. client will basically review them on the on the screen here in my studio and they will pick the shots that they want to go into retouching. Yeah. And so um because the my, my pricing model is based on a session fee plus a per photo fee. So the more shots they essentially pick, the more I upsell, if you want to call it yeah. that. Right? Yeah. And um and so, depending on how much time I've got with them, and how many, you know, how many, uh, how many looks I can create in that time, um, that'll basically have an impact on how many um, how many shots I'll I'll retouch afterwards. Okay. So I'm never really going to retouch that many, you right. know. So you know, we're talking anywhere between three and seven. Yeah, that same. When I do headshots, oh. I don't send those to my editor because by the time I've uploaded them and sent her the editing instructions i could have just done that myself also exactly that's exactly right so with boudoir and the reason i encourage all of my client or all my photographer students everyone to outsource is because we're showing more than the three to to seven you know three to seven yeah just do it yourself not a big deal um but too many photographers i feel hold on to that process of doing the edits because it's part of our creative process, right? But when you have 50, 70, 100 images for a session, it's not the best use of our time. And like you mentioned earlier, we're running businesses. We don't make money when we're editing. We make exactly. money when we're shooting and when we're selling. Yeah. So that's you're absolutely um, right. I always say, you know, I make money when I'm shooting, I'm losing money when I'm editing. That's that's the reality of it. And so, yeah. you know, so that's exactly why, you know, I I'll edit the sort of smaller operations myself, yep. you know, um, and the, the large volume stuff goes. And of course, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I've predominantly used sort of external editors to do that, actual humans. Yeah. But now, of course, with the way that AI has developed over the last six months or something, it's been nuts. Yeah. Um, you know, there are there's some really viable 
um, AI solutions out there. And I know from um, a lot of my wedding photography friends, yeah, um, a, a lot of them have entirely switched to AI editing with yeah. amazing results. Right, it's you know? like half a cent per image, and it does all the color grading. It'll straighten your horizons. Oh, absolutely. And- clean everything up yeah it'll learn your editing style i mean it's just the most yeah. the thing that you know blew my mind is like you you feed a few thousand of your own edits into the thing it'll work out what it is that you do and how you edit stuff and what you'll look yeah. at and then it'll just recreate that you know um that is that's nuts um and of course it's only the tip of the iceberg because right you know, um if if anybody was interested in ai uh whether that's out of sheer fear no, or or out of interest, um, you know, a couple of uh, episodes ago, um, I interviewed Micah Burke, who's an AI expert, um, and yep. that that was really that completely blew my mind. I mean, that's you know, because um, I remember we did an episode about Delhi in August, I believe, um, when Delhi was big in the press, and it was like the thing that can turn text prompts into like photorealistic images and all that, right. Um, and then when I spoke to Micah just before Christmas, it's like, yeah, that's an old hat. I mean, that's ancient history. Now we're like, it's, we're three months on from that. Right. <laughs> you no, know, we're talking about exponential development here. Yeah. You know, so, so yeah. And we you know what that can do again from a purely, purely from a business point of view, what that can do in, um, you know, economizing our time is, is brilliant. You know, that's, that's really where, where the future is when it comes to post-production. You know, yeah, absolutely. Do, you know, do the things that creatively fulfill you, but everything else, just let the machine do it. Right. And this is one of the biggest differentiators. It's what I start my my trainings with. Every new photographer I take on, we differentiate business owner who takes pictures from a photographer who's trying to make money. They are entirely different people, and we need to be business owners who happen to run a photography studio. We are no longer photographers who are trying to make money uh, because now everything is focused on the business. And the number one job of a business is to make money. And yeah, to, you know, to, 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 have, to have an income to basically, you know, pay your rent and, and everything else, your, your mortgage or whatever it is. Um, I often have these sort of conversations with uh, amateur photographers. You yep. know, who in a sense have the luxury of spending all of their disposable income on the latest and greatest camera gear, like the latest lenses, the latest bodies, you know, uh, this and the other. Sure. And I, you know, I used to shoot a, a Nikon D750 until very recently, which is a great camera. It's a great body. I love that thing. Um, I've shot it to bits, really. It's getting dangerous at some point. But um, I love it. I love the way it felt. It produced the images I needed to produce. Um, and None of my clients has always has ever asked me what camera body I was shooting the images with. It's really not interested in that whatsoever, right? Um, and so, to me, it was like you know, upgrading to uh, to a, a newer body or, or shifting into the mirrorless system, for instance. It was simply a numbers game. You know, does it make sense? Does it either make sense for me financially to do that? Um, right. because it's another tool that I have to buy when I don't necessarily have a need to upgrade the tool that I'm working because the tool that I'm using with, that I'm, that I'm working with, that I'm using, that's all the things that I needed to do. So yep. there's no reason. Uh, or does it give me any advantages? Like for instance, is there some kind of buyback, you know, like do I get more time back or are the files easier to, I don't know, you know, whatever. Um, right. And I, I, until recently, didn't see a reason to upgrade at all until, of course, it got to the point where um, 
the risk factor involved in carrying on with that body was the risk was just too high. Right. Yeah. The shutter could explode at any second with that many actuations on it. That's exactly <laughs> what it was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it was really getting to the point where, you know, it started to sound a little bit different. You know, when the shutter sound starts to shift and you go, uh oh, uh oh. <laughs> that's uh -huh. not that's not how I remember it. Uh you know, of course the last thing you can you can afford is, you know, your equipment to fail. Um right. on a shoot in front of a client. So it's like, okay, yep. well, right, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to change that. And then there's there's a legitimate reason for me to to upgrade. But other than that, from a purely from a business owner's point of view, not from a photography nerd, like I love everything to do with photography gear type of yep. point of view, right? But purely from a business point of view, I mean, it really has to make sense. When it even goes to the point where, you know, I'm thinking like, um, yeah, I mean, I, I could buy, um, you know, I could buy a more expensive constant light to light myself right now but actually i already have an L, you know an led panel and i love umbrellas that's all it takes yeah you know and so there's really no reason no tangible reason for me to go and spend you know nearly a thousand dollars on an aperture light and and another four hundred dollars something on, on a on a light there was a, there's, there's no reason for it nope. you know and that's you know that's as you say that's that's the difference between running a business and and, and doing it for your own personal enjoyment. Yeah. Both of these things are great, you know. But, exactly. But the motivations are different. Yeah. And if you run the business efficiently and you're making profit and it affords you time to play on your own also, then the money that the business pays you, because those are separate from the business's profit, you can go spend on all of the gear that you want to spend it on and geek out on all the technology and that's totally cool. They're just entirely, entirely different scenarios. Exactly. Absolutely. And that's often, yeah. I think that's, that's difficult to grasp for people, especially when they first, um, first start well, out. It's just that holding back on that urge to spend all your, all your right. money, like your last penny on, you know, and yeah. on even more gear. And Which, as you said, it's a tool for a job and can other tools get the job done? Also, can you get one used? that will get the job done the same, save some money there. Or if you're not even sure if you need something, rent it and do a couple shoots with some rental gear, spend, you know, $30 pounds a day, whatever to, to test drive something for a weekend. And then you might find that like, you know, I don't actually need this. Or I loved these shots that I took, but I shot four clients this week. They didn't buy any of those shots I got with the new macro lens. Maybe I don't need to spend 2000 on a macro lens because my clients don't care. Exactly. You know, I'll give you a really good example for that, for that very, for that very example. Um, yeah. So I shoot, when I first started shooting headshots, um, I used a, a 70 to 200 mm -hmm. for the vast majority of, of all the shots. Um, and then, you know, that Nikon 70-200 2.8, you know, costs a pretty penny. Um, I then eventually moved on to shooting with an 85, 1.8, which yeah. is a considerably more inexpensive lens. And what I find is that I can say 90% of the shots that the clients pick at the end would have been shot with the 85. So had I known that from the outset, 
you know, yeah. I would have never dropped all that cash on that 7200. I mean, that being said, it's a beautiful lens and I use it for lots of other things as well, for sure. Yep. But yep. purely for, for headshots, for me, the way that I shoot, the 85mm is just my go-to lens. However, that be, I mean, again, there's a caveat because what I do now is, especially with people who are the first-time clients, I, I will I will start out with the 7200 um, because it means I'm a little bit further away from the client and as we get acquainted with each other, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour in, I'll switch over to the 85 and then it's not as weird when I'm literally in their face, you know? Right. Yeah. So, I love the 85 for headshots too. That is my go-to headshot lens. Um, and for boudoir photographers, I recommend that 70 to 200 for detail shots, especially like as a dude, I'm not going to get up in my client's business to photograph the details on their outfit. You know, I mean, if, if they've got beautiful lace work falling across their collarbone, I'm going to shoot that every day of the week, but I'm not going to get my camera up six inches away from their chest to take the picture. Cause one, like, I don't want to get that close to my clients. It just as a comfort thing for them, but also like they're not going to move the same when I'm up in their bubble. So what I'll do is I put people into a pose knowing that the only thing showing is going to be like their neck and their collarbone, but I will pose every part of their body and have them look away and do the thing like they're, they've believed their whole body is being photographed and I'm just zoomed in on the detail shots I want to get. Um, and then they'll see the photos later on and, and forget that they even did the pose and just love the shots. But, uh, that's another boudoir tip. What's that? Number four, five. Yeah. I lost count. Um, get the longer lens for the detail shots. So you're not in your client's personal bubble. Perfect. Let's talk a little bit about, um, about equipment. I think there's two things we need to really, um, cover. One is gear just generally, you know, what do you need if you, if you want to yep. get into, um, boudoir photography, but also then the other thing is location. Like where do you shoot that? You know, that's, I think yeah. that's sort of, uh, that's going to be big on, on, on somebody's mind. I, I think they go hand in hand because location could dictate the gear that you need. So for the first four, five years, I shot in hotels and I have two local ones near me that I would book out. Um, one was like a neutral gray decor. The other one was red and black. And so I went and I toured every hotel in my area to find ones that didn't look like they were decorated in the seventies. And like, even the modern hotels, like, why do you have orange and brown walls? That's ugly. It's like, they don't want you to be in the room. So they make them hideous, you know? Uh, so ones that were affordable, that made sense. Cause I'm, I'm renting them every single time we shoot and ones that had decor that was going to fit anyone's color choices or style or anything. Actually, I just interrupt you there. Um, yeah. a few years ago, my wife and I went over to uh, Lake Tahoe. And yeah. we uh, we got a we rented out a, a hotel room in Tower City, which was it was amazing. Basically, the room was like straight out of the seventies. It was beautiful. I mean, it had like a sort of a built-in like kitchenette type of a thing. Yeah. Um, but everything like the dishwasher and everything was straight out of the seventies. But it was like like it was brand new in the seventies. Right. So, <laughs> so you know, so you walked in and you were like whoa, okay, what's that decor? And then you go, wait a minute, all the appliances look brand, they actually look brand new. Like they've been bought in the 70s, mothballed and never used. 
Yeah. And we're like, this is pretty damn cool. I mean, you know, where are my flat jeans? Like, what's going on? Right. <laughs> you know? Awesome. So yeah, let's yeah. put a record on and we'll hang out. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. It was great. Yeah. It was, it was phenomenal. So yeah. So yeah, right. I know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to decor, for sure. Yeah. And I think the hotel game or Airbnbs are great for people getting started in boudoir. You don't need to go rent an expensive studio. You know, it's like having the expensive camera body. Your client doesn't care how much you spend to get the thing done as long as it is a comfortable, clean, safe environment where they have a bathroom, place to go change that is away from you. Um, you know, they can take their shoes off without feeling gross. They don't have to walk through your living room and step on kids' toys and see dirty dishes in the sink. Like it, it's a clean, safe environment that looks like it's used for that. You know, I would never just go, you know, tell my client, hey, meet me up in room 201. My stylist and I would be outside the hotel entrance to greet them, to get their bag, to walk them in. Um, and it was cool because I wasn't paying a monthly rent. If I had a slow month, I would just book the room on days that I booked clients. So that was cost control also in the beginning. And it was great. We got really good shooting in these these spaces. I could work the room really well from the bed to the couch, to the walls, to the floor, to whatever. Like we made a lot happen in those rooms. And then I had an office where I would do my in-person reveals um, that I now use as my my shoot space. I converted, remodeled the place to to use it for both. So that's an option. Again, Airbnbs are great to rent them as you need them. You can change your styles, whatever, or rent a studio if if you want to do that. But get a proof of concept. Make sure you know how to make money first before you go and sign a lease on a place because you don't need that kind of financial stress in your life. Uh, as far as the equipment goes, a lot of it comes down to the lighting. Uh, there's a photographer I was hanging out with the other day. She has a studio she calls the Sunlight Space. Tons of windows that face south and west. And for us, that's daylight all day. And she has sheer white curtains. The place is so evenly lit inside. Uh, any direction you face is great lighting. Given it's all bright and airy, um, you know, she does branding, like personal branding photos in there for people because any of the setups she has doesn't matter any time of day. The lighting looks fantastic for what she does. Um, so she doesn't need lights, but I I bring my strobes. I shoot my style. I can do them in the middle of the day in an open parking lot and get the same dark and moody look that I shoot. So, you know, I use a single gridded softbox. Sometimes I'll throw a, a background light or a hair light on somebody if if we're shooting a dark against a dark, but I mean like, you know, black hair against a black background will disappear. So I'll throw a hair light on. Obviously I don't have that problem, but, uh, you know, back to the camera talk, everything is a tool for a job. So what tools do you need to create the look? And that will depend on your environment. Usually he said it's, you know, what's changed my mind a little bit about, about lighting is, um, I had, uh, a week or so ago, I spoke to um, Sean Luthwaite, who's a headshot and portrait photographer uh, over in Stockholm. Yeah. Um, this Scottish expat um, over in Stockholm. And uh, he exclusively shoots with one light. And when I was thinking about this, and I was you know, thinking about the, the stuff that he does, I kind of thought, you know, sometimes it's good to simplify your process. And... I've found that maybe over the last 
few years, my thinking has gotten too overcomplicated. Mm-hmm. And I'm now really into just reeling it back a little bit and actually just using one light and just exploring that. You know, yeah. um, whilst, you know, previously I used to throw like the more the merrier on something. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, but, um, but, but yeah, that's, that's really, it's kind of, it's changed, it's changed my way of thinking. You know, in the same way that I compare this with, weirdly, I compare this with street photography. Um, because I like to, I like to do street photography just to relax and just to kind of get away from everything else that I do because it's so different and it has no commercial, there's no commercial afterthought or anything like that. It's just pure enjoyment and I'm just like, yeah. um, but I don't take several bodies or lenses or anything with me. I just have one tiny little camera, like a Fuji F series camera that I take with me and that is it. So there's a fixed lens, yeah. there's no zoom, there's nothing. It just simplifies the whole the whole process down to that's the only tool I've got. So yeah. now I've got to start thinking on my feet rather than, you know, relying on a zoom lens and, and this and that and the other. So um so from a lighting perspective, you know, that's that's an interesting that's an yeah. interesting way of thinking. And I didn't have any money when I got started. I had one softbox. No, I had two softboxes, but I only had one speed ring. And this was before Godox and Flashpoint and all these affordable lighting solutions that are out now. I couldn't afford Profoto. I, I wanted the $10,000 bronze color set that I had no business using. And I couldn't afford anything else, you know? Um, so I used one light and I got really, really good with it. And I shot everything with a 50 millimeter on a full frame camera on my, you know, one fixed lens, same. I got really, really good at it. And now that I have all these other tools, like I, I still use the same stuff, really. I mean, I shoot with the 35 millimeter lens now because I'm in a little bit smaller space, but I don't know, I'm still doing 95% of my shoot with one lens and I do the same two lighting setups it's either a hair light or a background light and the same gridded softbox. It's funny you mentioned Broncolor. I remember um, I shared a studio session uh, one time, again, years ago, with another photographer. And uh, yeah. the, the studio basically had a full Broncolor setup, which was beautiful until that other photographer set up a beauty dish, which came off, it came off the light and smashed onto the floor and was broken. Um, and that cost him 800 bucks to replace. And that part I'm thinking like, right, okay, that idea of either shooting broncolor gear or even pro photo gear, it's like, yep. okay, I'm going to drop that idea because that's just idiotic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I wanted something a little bit better than the policy buff, the alien bees or the, the white lightnings, like they were in, inconsistencies. I don't know. Uh, they're, they're great for what they are. You know, I'm grateful we have Flashpoint and Godox stuff now. That's what I use, the AD600s. Um, but I, I don't know. It's a reliable flash and it's battery operated and it works. I don't really care about anything else. Yeah. Godox you know, and my West, clients don't yeah. care. Exactly. I mean, Godox and Westcott are actually two like really awesome brands. They're really great bang for the buck. Um, yeah. you know, I, I currently shoot Interfit. Um, and the reason why I shoot them actually is because they are the same form factor as the old alien bees. So they, okay. they're cuboid. And my shooting space is really small. So yep. my, my camera room is this tiny. And so I needed to get um, I needed to get strobes that 
wouldn't be elongated, so I can get them closer to the to the wall. If you know what I mean. Uh-huh. So and they're yellow. That's the other thing. Who doesn't who doesn't love a yellow straw for me? You know. Um, but so so they work really well for me. Yeah. Um, the only trouble that I have with them now is that there isn't much of an ecosystem around them. Right. And so, so th- that's why I'm thinking of it might be time to look at to to look at other options. You know, just yeah. simply because um, Interfit, I think as a brand, they're really good. They're super reliable. Um, they're virtually indestructible. Yeah. You know, and they look really cool. And I've got I've got nothing but good things to say about them. But there's of a lack of a you know of a of an ecosystem, you know, to, right. the, to the point where, for instance, you know, they're still very much tied into this. Oh, you have to have a manufacturer specific, like cam- camera brand specific um, transmitter, for example, right? Which, when everybody else can do sort of multi-brand type transmitters, you kind of go, well, that's not like you know, because when I'm teaching a class, like I'm teaching a, a lighting class um, at the moment, and it's like, yeah, well. This is nonsense because I've got five people in the in the room, or six people in the room, all with different cameras. You know, one, yep. one's got an Olympus, and one's got a Canon, and Nikon, whatever. That's like what you really want to do is you just want to give them the transmitter, plonk it on their camera, and then start shooting. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a major downside that I can't do that. So it's I mean, it's just things like that. Again, you know, it's gotten to the point where um, I, I need a piece of equipment that does the job that I needed to do and. And that's where I've hit the limits with this particular piece of equipment, you know. Um yeah. and that's that's where it's that's when it's worth thinking about other things. So but I've I've been looking at Goldox um and Westcott. So I think those are two things I've been looking at. Yeah. Uh, I remember the the old days of using pocket wizard triggers and those were great because they just plugged into the hot shoe and it could work on any any camera it could go trigger your flashes, you know, as long as there was almost line of sight or, you know, something mm. close to that, but having the Godox stuff now, you know, I'll teach a lighting class. I'll have four different setups. So I have more lights now because when I teach classes, I need more than one setup, but like, I really only use the stuff when I'm teaching lighting classes. Otherwise all the gear I have just sits over there and, you know, collects dust. So yeah, they're great. Cause you can just pop the thing off if you're not worried about high speed sync then any any trigger can go on any brand of camera and fire these strobes use that bridge yeah it works really well yep i do it too when i'm filming myself or doing my own headshots yeah so that's the one downside i don't like about these nikon mirrorless is they don't have an easy trigger a remote trigger like the the canon ones do because i used to use the the 5d series and my mark IV, i had a remote trigger that could do instant or a two second timer and I did all my own headshots, all my own branding photos with that. And it was tiny, so I could hide it in my hand and you'd never know it was in the photo. But I mean, yeah, it's cool to, to see everything in SnapBridge and do it on your phone, but I had to hit the thing and then throw it down and then do the pose. And yeah, it's just not as convenient. Exactly. That's exactly what I used to do. Um, in fact, that's how I came up with the whole concept for the three heads in a row project was because I was actually um, trying to do an image for the about page on my website. And yep. on, the dog's broken again. Uh, he does that. I just see the tail going back yeah. and forth. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, but uh but yeah, so I was you know I was trying to come up with with a look for for the profile image on my on my website and 
Yeah. Um, and as I was doing that, of course, I had to remote control everything. He's just broken <laughs> in through the other door. <laughs> okay. Now you're stuck, buddy. That's it. <laughs> my wife just shut the door, so he's uh, he's stuck in here. Ah. Uh, yeah, you with me now. Anyway, so um, and uh, and so you know everything had to be remotely triggered, and it was a similar yep. thing. You know, I would set it to like a two second timer, uh, or like a two second delay. I would hit the button. I would throw the remote away. You know, I'll pause and take the shot, and then you know I'd go through the same process. Yeah. Uh, and it was just when I hit the button, somehow I miscalculated, and I was sort of mid pose. I was basically changing from one pose to the next. Yeah, and the thing fired and it took the image, you know. And I looked at it afterwards, and I'm like, "Well, obviously that doesn't work. It looks like I look like a deer in the headlights, you know." Um, I had that kind of country bumpkin look of somebody sure. who doesn't recognize their own recognition and the like their own image in the water, sort of thing. But yeah. you know, so and I'm thinking, I mean, clearly that doesn't work as a serious headshot, but there's something buffoonishly funny about it that I really like, you know? And yeah. so as I was looking at the other shots, that was that was a shot I always, I used to come back to, and I used to think like, yeah, there's something, there's something funny about this, something cool about this somehow. Yep. And then, you know, then the next thing is like, oh, okay. So what if I can shoot other people like that? Uh, you know, and, and then it's like, okay, so how do I get people to give me these grotesque expressions? Um, and you come up with this whole, you know, I came up with this whole thing of, um, of, of using objects, um, to get them to warm up to me. So, okay. the, so the whole thing is basically I, I get them to choose three different objects that mean a lot to them. And uh, by by doing that, that serves two purposes. One, um, it's a series of, it's a triptych, essentially a series of three shots yeah. where, where the subject interacts with that particular object that they've chosen um, or those three objects. And so that sort of tells a story across three shots. So you kind of get to know what that person is into simply by the, the objects that have chosen and the way they interact with them because yeah. you know it could be uh, descriptive of their profession or what they're into or whatever or what means a lot to them but also it's a great conversation starter and a great talking point so what it does is it actually warms them up to me because we can immediately talk about the object and why they've chosen that and what the story is and all that kind of stuff and so it helps them to relax really quickly Yep, and that means that uh, you know I can build up that trust, and then over time they'll, um, like, you know, w within minutes, we get to the point where I can really push them over the line, and they give me these stupidly idiotic expressions, um, and they feel good about it. Right? <laughs> you know, and yeah. that's the thing. Same thing I do with my clients, based on the outfits they bring and the props and whatever else. Yeah, I get them talking about these stories, and they open up and. And it's not me interviewing them. It's not an interrogation. They're not put on the spot for anything. We're just having a conversation about something that they're passionate about and just hanging out. And also the outfits. I mean, this is the other thing I was going to uh, talk to you about is um, the outfits. I mean, oh, I take it the, the clients choose the outfits or they bring them with them. Yeah. And of course, that's that's a very personal thing for the vast majority of people, I guess. So that's that in itself... It's quite a revealing sort of uh, sort of aspect to it. Yeah, and that's part of our our consult process is talking about wardrobe and giving them suggestions. <laughs> part of my preparation guide, I have a lot of info in there about how to pick out outfits, what works well, what doesn't. Um, but I tell people there's no dress code. Like you wear whatever you want. I have clothes or 
clients who are fully clothed their whole shoot. And that's great. I have some who want to be naked the entire time. I'm like, great. You know, uh, that's it. It's just whatever you're comfortable with is what we're going to do. But we're telling your story. We're going to do five outfits. So if you want to bring lingerie, cool, but also bring your favorite dress to wear on date nights or an interview outfit or, you know, your brunch outfit, or, you know, we have clients. I've had someone bring, uh, a wetsuit and fins. Cause she travels the world scuba diving, I photograph people in mermaid tails, um, hiking gear. What else have we done? Uh, someone brought her Renaissance fair outfit. And I mean, totally garbed out fan corset, everything looked incredible. We've had belly dancer clothes and just, you know, whatever they're passionate about, whatever is part of their identity and their personality. Um, we have them bring that. And so it, it's fun for me because I get new things to play with all the time in front of my camera, you know, as far as outfits and, and personalities go, but it, it also makes them feel more validated because these things that are important to them are worthy. They're not trivial. Of course. Yeah. Because if they would have chosen them for something that's, that's extremely personal, I guess, you know, yeah. I mean, it's always like, you know, taking your clothes off in front of another person is, is an extremely intensely personal thing to do. Yeah. And that being photographed and that being recorded itself right. in itself is extremely personal. Yeah. And the way that I position that process to my clients, I say, you're not taking your clothes off to be sexy. You're dropping your armor and you're being vulnerable and you're going to face who you are because that person's already good enough and I want you to see her. And that is an entirely different scenario than cool, take your clothes off so we can take sexy photos. Absolutely. Same end result, yeah. more or less, but entirely different way to get there. But psychologically, a, a major confidence yeah. booster. Huge. And it, and it's why there's no dress code. Like, again, they, they can wear whatever they want. They can be fully clothed the whole time. It's totally cool. And I, I've had so many clients come in and like, cool, well, I brought all these outfits. I don't feel comfortable doing anything in my underwear. I'm like, great. And we get 15 minutes in and they're like, can we just go naked? Is that cool now? And you know, like everything changes once they, they get the vibe of the room and they see how they look in the photos and it changes the way they feel. It's a pretty cool thing. It's a, it's a great thing to see that happen. It's I always yes. enjoy that. Um, it's probably one of my favorite moments when people come back and they review the images and all of a sudden they, you know, there's this sort of this mind shift that happens um, often in people when they think they've only ever seen them themselves on like bad selfies or passport photos. And yep. they don't realize that actually when they're posed properly, when they're lit properly, they'll look amazing. They've never seen themselves in that light, quite literally. And it's yeah. when that realization takes place, you know, when that light bulb goes goes off and you see that happening, that's always, that's one of my favorite moments. <laughs> yeah, right? In any session, it's great. Yeah. Because then it's not even about the photos. It's not, no. It's just that transformation has happened. You've done your job. You've made your money already. And now it's just, you know, details after that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So what would be your number one tip for anyone uh, wanting to start out in or, or get into boudoir photography? What would be yeah. like your number one piece of advice? Figure out your why. Why do you want to do it? Because that is going to give you direction on how to approach everything. 
what kind of lighting you want to do, what kind of posing you want to do, you know, what kind of clients do you want to attract? Uh, what are we actually doing for people? So figuring out why is the first step and there's no wrong answer, but you need to know that. so everything else can fall into place. Awesome. Mike, on that note, it was absolutely amazing having you on the show. Um, what a conversation. There's so much, um, uh, absolute gold in there for anybody who's, uh, you know, has ever thought about, you know, potentially giving boudoir photography a shot. Um, and likewise, also, I think anybody who's ever thought about being photographed in that, in that way, um, yeah, know, there's a, there's a lot in there. Um, so thank you very much for being our guest this week. It's been absolutely amazing. Thanks for having me, Kirsten. This was great. This was a quick two hours. I, I feel like we could sit here for like 10 more and not even realize yeah. a day went by. Yeah, it's, fun. it's funny. Everybody says that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, that's what I mean. That's, that's why I never put any limits on, on, on the length of any episode. And yeah, yeah. there might be listeners out there thinking like, oh, wow, you know, an hour and a half, two hours. That's, that's a very long episode, but you know, that's just how long it takes to really deep dive into into those kind of subjects and and yep. getting to know the person behind the lens which is ultimately exactly what we're trying to do um, yeah i do the same on my youtube channel i my interviews are intended to be a half hour they all turn into multiple part episodes so i i feel yeah fantastic mike thank you very much this episode has been rudely interrupted by this dog <laughs> It's a complete nightmare. I see that as a value add. Everyone <laughs> loves happy dogs. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He's part of the show. <laughs> For all of you listening to the audio version of this podcast, be advised that there's a fully technicolored uh, version over on YouTube. Um, all you got to do is head over to YouTube. Once you're there, just uh, you know, hit that like and subscribe button. As always, it does help us being found. If you are listening to the Apple podcast version of this, um, just leave us a little five-star rating, you know, leave a little comment because again, it just helps us being found in the great wide, big old sea of podcasts out there. Anyway, that being said, it's been a blast. See you again next week. Bye.